The following sermon by Pastor Rick Holland is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. Open your Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 1. We'll continue in our plotting study of this book. We're making no quick grounds in this first chapter, and for good reason. This is some of the most important territory in all of the Word of God, especially in, a day, in the day in which we live, where we're seeing the events that are discussed in this passage played out before our eyes and in the headlines daily. Romans chapter 1, we've made our way down to chapter 1, verse 24, and we'll look at this over the next few weeks, moving into the end of the chapter, and the title of the little series we're going to be in is this, When God Has Had Enough. There is a time when humanity has stressed beyond by its sin, by his or her sin, has stressed the mercy of God to a point where he gives people over to their very sin. This is a tragic reality and a traumatic theological point that is accented in this verse, these verses. Follow along as I begin reading in verse 24. Therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their heart to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason... God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Last week saw another evidence of the moral state of society and the general state of America in particular. Final preparations were being made for the second inauguration of President Barack Obama. That will actually take place tomorrow morning. Lou Giglio, an Atlanta pastor had been invited to give the benediction and prayer during the inauguration and was suddenly disinvited. The drama behind this withdrawal is quite interesting. It was generated by a liberal watchdog group that discovered a sermon that Giglio had preached nearly two decades ago in which he asserted that homosexuality is a sin before God and, quote, the only way out of homosexual lifestyle is through the healing power of Jesus, end quote. The fact that Giglio was actually disinvited was made clear in a statement made from Addie Wisnett of the Presidential Inauguration Committee. She said this, quote, We were not aware of Pastor Giglio's past comments at the time of his selection, and they do not reflect our desire to celebrate the strength and diversity of our country at this inauguration. Pastor Giglio was asked to deliver the benediction in large part because of his leadership in combating human trafficking around the world 
as we now work towards selecting someone to deliver the benediction, we will ensure that their beliefs reflect this administration's vision of inclusion and acceptance for all Americans. So let's get this straight. A Bible-believing Christian pastor has been disinvited from delivering the inaugural prayer benediction at the inauguration of the President of the United States, where that same president will tomorrow morning place his hand on a Bible to testify to the solemnity of his oath and the importance of what he's doing to place his hand on something that carries no more gravity and no more weight than the Holy Bible itself. And this pastor was disinvited because he actually dared to say and preach and believe what that Bible actually says in the passage before us. Got that straight? Well, I wish the story ended there. What's even more disheartening is Giglio's response to being disinvited. He said, quote, Due to a message of mine that has surfaced from 15 to 20 years ago, it is likely that my participation in the prayer I would offer will be dwarfed by those seeking to make their agenda the focal point of this inauguration. Clearly, speaking on this issue has not been in the range of my priorities in the past 15 years. Instead, I just can't believe that word follows. Instead, my aim has been to call people to ultimate significance as we make much of Jesus Christ. Writing on this disinformation friend and colleague Al Mohler says this, the presidential inaugural committee and the White House have now declared historic biblical Christianity to be out of bounds, casting it off the inaugural program as an embarrassment. By its newly articulated standard, any preacher who holds to the faith of the church for the last 2,000 years is now persona non grata, end quote. It's quite a statement, isn't it? You are seeing in front of your eyes, on the TV, in the newspaper, every day, the playing out of Romans chapter 1. Society is escalating, de-escalating, devolving, running as fast as it can toward the bottom of the barrel. What's listed here in Romans 1 is the categorization of sin that's pursued, sin to which God gives a person over to, and sin to which a a nation and a society ultimately bow the knee toward. I make no bones about saying that I believe that the agenda of the Democratic Convention is entirely anti-God and follows Romans 1 as its mantelpiece instead of its avoidance. We come to verses 18 to 23 in our study of Romans 1, and Paul has been describing the wrath of God over verses 18 to 23, he, he, he described, we looked at this over the last few weeks, that God is rightfully and righteously furious and angry at sinners who have rejected the gospel and traded in the glory of the incorruptible God for the glory of corruptible man, for the worship of things and animals and values that have nothing to offer in comparison to the greatness of God. The unbeliever, the point of this passage is that the unbeliever has no excuse before God. God has made himself known to man in his 
inner mind, through his conscience. There is no one who is ever born an atheist, only those who deny the God consciousness that he gave to every heart. God does not believe in atheists because atheists don't exist. Deniers of God exist. Atheists do not. Instead of giving God thanks, instead of giving God worship, instead of giving God the glory and the worth that he deserves, unbelievers exchange the glory of God for idols, creating foolish worldviews that bow the knee to anything but the true and living God and the gospel and God's son. That's what's happening in verses 18 to 23. Now, in verses 24 to 32, the apostle begins to explain the consequences and ramifications of rejecting God. When a person comes to lay their life on the altar of themselves and of created things and abandons and stiff arms the glory of God and actually believes there are things more valuable than the God of the Bible, there are massive and traumatic and eternal consequences and ramifications. Interestingly now, he, he begins with the worst of moral perversions expressed in sexual deviance. I'm going to drill down into this verse a little bit today, and it'll take us a few weeks to work through the end of the chapter, but this is just like reading the newspaper. As we look at this text, what we're going to work through this week and in the coming studies is three ramifications of violating God's gracious limits. Three ramifications of violating God's gracious limits. Now, in, in, inherent in that statement and that proposition of our study is the fact that God is gracious and God is merciful, but God has limits. There is a time when God has had enough. The first ramification of violating God's gracious limit is in verses 24 and 25. Number one, being given over to impure hearts. Being given over to pure hearts. That's the first ramification. You're given over to an impure heart. Let's look at this even more closely. The the, the first place you see that is in verse 24, in deep-seated lusts, deep, heart-wrenching, deep-seated lusts, verse 24. Therefore, God gave them, those who had exchanged the truth of God for a lie, those who had exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for the glory of corruptible man and creatures, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. This is the first of three times in this passage that Paul uses the phrase, God gave them over. Now, we have to ask a first question. What does that mean? God gives someone over to sin. God gave them over. Three times in this passage, God gave them over. God gave them over. God gave them over. What does that mean? What's the source of this statement? Well, we have to understand that God, first of all, was not the source of their sin. God did not give them over to do sin they were not already doing. Not the author nor the source of any sin. However, there comes a point where God has had enough. This should be a frightening reality to any unbeliever who's listening to this sermon today. You are under God's mercy and preparing and resting for God's wrath. And the fact that you have a heartbeat, the fact that you have breath, the fact that you can hear God's word this morning and understand the gospel offer is such amazing mercy and grace. But there will be a time 
when he's had enough. God giving them over speaks of his ceasing of the restraining of sin. He lets them go in their pursuit of sin. Frederick Godet says this, he ceases to hold the boat as it's dragged along by the current of the river, end quote. It's a good picture. God is holding all of us in a very strong current to go downstream toward our own sin, and he's holding us, holding us back from drifting over a waterfall. And there comes a time when he says, you want to pursue that? And he lets go. By the way, this giving over is never immediate. It's never immediate. It's always after how long, how weeks, months, years of grace and mercy. Nor should we assume that someone who has been given over in their sin, please, don't ever assume that they can never be saved. God is in the business of saving thieves on crosses and people on deathbeds. We don't know when that final judgment and wrath is expressed, and until a person's last breath, we should pray for and give them, pray for them and give them the gospel in every possible angle. It says it gives them over to impurity. Akatharisa, interesting word. It's moral and ceremonial uncleanness, especially from sexual sin. This entire passage is talking about sexual impropriety. And it's very interesting. As he discusses the the decline of society, he actually begins at the bottom and says sexual perversion and sexual deviance is one of the first and final expressions that that a society in general and a person in particular has been turned over to their sin. Uncontrolled sexual desires. The next verses, he'll talk about that being expressed in homosexuality. They give, given themselves, he gives them over to impurity. That's the pursuit of sexual sin. The panoply of the words groups, the, the, the theologians and, and uh, semantic guys call this the semantic domain, the range of the, of the use of a word, of this idea of impurity, and as we'll see in a few minutes, uh, a couple of other words that are parallels has the idea of sexual sin in thought or in deed. From the idea of adultery in the mind to looking at the internet or visions or expressions of sexuality on a screen, to actual participation, that's the range that's going on here. That word impurity can cover all of that from the mind to the expression. He talks about their bodies being dishonored among them. You, using your body for sexual pleasure in any way outside of the marriage bed. That's the discussion here. It's also probably a reference to the, to the diseases that are related to sexual sin. Let's just say this. God, this is a surprise to some young people especially. God actually created and God invented sex as a gift to humanity. It is a blessing intended to be enjoyed in a monogamous relationship between a man and a woman in marriage. It's a gift. It is not frowned upon. It is smiled upon. 1 Corinthians 7 says a married couple is actually in sin if they don't pursue that pleasure. It's a point of obedience. And yet... When a society and a person starts spiraling out of control, sexual deviance is one of the first things 
that happens in mind and in body. Let's look a little further into verse 25. Being given over to impure hearts, secondly, in idolatrous motivations. This is really a repeat. He goes back and captures what he talked about in uh, verses um, uh, 18 to 23. Verse 25 does, for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Now he goes back and gets that idolatry and says, let me show you behind the curtain of what's happening in idolatry. You exchanged God's truth, his biblical truth, his definition of his image, his definition of himself, his definition of morality. You exchanged that for something that's not true, something that's a lie. Interestingly, something that always gives you permission to act out sexual and sinful pleasures. You always give yourself an excuse This entire passage is saying there are no excuses. They exchange the truth of God for a lie, a lie that tells you you can sin, that an unbeliever can sin and get away with it, or that God is not quite as wrathful toward this sin or toward me in particular as he would be someone else or some other sin. And they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. We already saw this where they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for the glory of corruptible man, for the image of corruptible man, for four-footed creatures, for crawling insects, for animals. That's just a big spectrum to say exchanging anything of value that we think is more valuable than God himself. Then he just adds this little footnote, who's blessed forever and ever. Paul is so doxological. Even the mention of the creator. He says, he's blessed forever and ever. Amen. He is eternal. All the creation is not. He's blessed forever and ever. He is the object of worship now and in eternity, not just now and next week. Then he adds, amen. So be it. Let it be affirmed. Let it be stamped. Let it be approved. Drop the gavel. This is truth. All human sin is grounded, by the way, in some form of rejecting God's glory. It could be said the other way, that the greatest need of man, the greatest pursuit of a Christian, ought to be pursuing and understanding and reveling in God's glory. What a great God he is. How amazing he is. As I said, this goes back and mentions and grabs the the, the heart behind the idolatry in verse 23, but... I like the way he gives this so clear and says, it's exchanging God's truth for a lie. All sin is a lie. Every time we sin, we've lied to ourselves to say, satisfaction gained from this sin is better than satisfaction gained from obeying God. Pretty simple, isn't it? What's worse is when we believe it again and again and again. We're like that silly fly trying to get out of a window that just keeps buzzing into the glass until it falls dead. It will never get through it. We keep thinking if we keep pressing on this sin, it'll bring satisfaction and never will. It's elevating value of anything or any experience higher than God and the gospel. And we discussed that in detail last week. Remember what we said, an idol is something or anything that you value so much you will sin to get it, sin to enjoy it, or sin if you're deprived of it. That's the test of idolatry in anyone's heart, even a believer. An idol is something or anything that you, will, that you value so much, you'll sin to get it, or sin to enjoy it, or sin if you're deprived of it. It is ultimately exchanging the truth of God and his glory for a lie that something on this earth will bring us 
greater pleasure than God himself. Taste and see that he is good, the psalmist said. He's satisfying. By the way, we should say this, failure to give God his glory, failure to give God his due inevitably results in failure to treat people created in the image of God in the right way. You want to know what every relational problem we've ever experienced is rooted in? Exchanging the truth of God for a lie. We believe that if we will treat them in a way less than dignified, if we will treat them in a way less than honoring the, the, the commandments in Scripture, they will somehow win and be satisfied. And he says, that's a lie. Here's the truth. You may win in the short term, but not in the end. Paul is saying, if you pursue these impure lusts, if we pursue these idolatrous passions, God will give us over to them in the end. If an unbeliever will not stop in the pursuit of this, there, becomes, there comes a point in time where God says, that's it. You want that? You can have it. That leads to a second ramification of violating God's gracious limits. We'll see how far we can get in this one. Being given over to sexual deviance. Being given over to sexual Deviance. Verses 26 and 27 are the dark side. These are subjects and issues that are not comfortable for me to talk about. They're not comfortable for us to talk about. They should not be comfortable for anyone with a dignified sensibility and a biblical worldview to talk about. And yet Paul, right out of the gate in Romans 1, says this is the issue to observe when you're measuring a person or a culture's slide into depravity. First is in verse 6. It's expressed in lesbianism. It's expressed in lesbianism. You say, Rick, are you really going to preach on that? Here's what, Mission Road Bible Church. Mission Road what? Bible Church. It's the next verse. We can't skip this. It's very clear. God gives an unbeliever over eventually who's pursuing sexual deviance in a lesbian situation to their sin. Verse 26. For this reason, God, here's our phrase again, gave them over, turned them loose, stopped his restraint to, here's another word, degrading passions. Degrading passions are lusts that are sexual in nature that go against nature, as we'll see in a moment. Four, their women exchange the natural function for that which is unnatural. Disgracing God's design and plan for heterosexual, monogamous sexual relations in a marriage is a tragic consequence of rejecting God. Now, footnote, not everyone who rejects God pursues homosexuality. But those who do, now we find the, the sinful lineage of that that comes from rejecting God and pursuing sexual sin. Tom Schreiner puts it like this. An unfit mind is the fruit of seeing God as unfit. An unfit mind is the fruit of seeing God as unfit. It's really well stated. Why, why focus on homosexuality? It's kind of interesting, isn't it? We're just tooling along. The gospel's great. Talking about Jesus. Talking about seeing you in Rome. Uh, the wrath of God's coming. Uh, the idolatry is happening. People are pursuing their own list. Homosexuality. Really interesting. I think probably because it serves, this sin serves as such a graphic illustration 
of that which is unnatural and goes against God's creative order in such an obvious sense, it should be self-evident. Homosexuality is here called that which is unnatural, literally against nature. The Greek terminology is it's, it's contra nature. It goes against natural functions. Don't miss the connection here with idolatry, by the way. Idolatry is a violation and perversion of the desire to worship God that God put in each man. It is unnatural. Idolatry is unnatural, and so is homosexuality. Homosexuality, too, goes against what God has intended when he created man and woman, male and female, and yes, a literal Adam and Eve. By the way, the Greek text is interesting here in that Paul, he doesn't use the normal words uh, 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 for man and woman. Uh, you would expect him to use uh, uh, gene for, for woman and onera for man. Instead, he uses thalus and arson. He uses male and female. Again, to accent, it should be obvious from nature that male and female were intended for one another and not female with female and male with male. I'm trying as hard as I can to be as sensitive as I can about the language that's here. But when Paul says they exchanged um, the function of that which is natural for the unnatural, he is being as graphic as you can imagine. Trading sexual experiences that were intended for the opposite sex with those with the same sex. He's making the critical point here that there's a physical, creative distinction between men and women. Take your children to the zoo. This is obvious. And it's beautifully expressed in the sexual union he created us for. Therefore, to pursue sexual relations and pleasure with someone of the same sex is contra to nature. Pasafusen in Greek. Against nature, opposite nature. It's quite remarkable here that he, he begins with, with lesbianism. If I said the word homosexual to you, would your natural first thought be lesbianism or sodomy? He starts with that. That's how debased a society can get. He doesn't stop there. This is expressed in lesbianism, and next it's expressed in sodomy, in men with men. You know, I was reading this this morning over, and I just think the, the, the Bible is not really rated G, but the R is not restricted by, by the things that the movie industry does. It's restricted by the wisdom of God who shoots straight with us about realities like here expressed in sodomy, and in the same way, in the same way that the women exchanged their natural bodies, their natural functions for that which was unnatural in homosexual relationships, in the same way, verse 27, also the men, they abandoned the natural function of the woman, and they burned in their lusts, they burned in their desires toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Now, there's a lot of debate about what the due penalty of their error means. Let's, let's move backwards in this text. Let's go from the end and move to the front. 
Some have said, well, that's AIDS, but not every homosexual gets AIDS. Some have said that's uh, sexual diseases, but not every homosexual gets that sexual disease. So that can't be the all and end of what that means. When God turns people in homosexuality over the due penalty of their error, what he's talking about, if you follow the flow of the context, is the penalty is not something in addition to homosexuality, but rather being given over to that sin. That's the due penalty of the error. If you pursue it, I'll let you have it. Your unnatural desires will begin to be confused so that you call unnatural desires what? Natural. I was born this way. When I hear somebody say that, I think, has God given you over? Have you been given over so that you have exchanged, even mentally, the unnatural as wiser and more attractive than the natural? The Bible's clear, and the Bible is consistent that homosexuality is a sin and an abomination to God. Take your Bibles and turn back to Genesis chapter 19 for a moment. Familiar territory. We call homosexualities between males sodomy, and we call it that for a reason. It goes back to Genesis chapter 19. You know the story. Verse 1, now two angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting at the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground and said, now behold, my lords, please turn aside into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go your own way. They said, however, no, we shall spend the night in the square outside. He urged them strongly. He must have known exactly what these men were like. He urged them strongly so that they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he prepared a feast for them and baked unleavened bread and they ate. Before night, before they laid down, the men... Of the city, the men of Sodom, it goes, there's a double uh, uh, repetition here on purpose. The men, the men, surrounded the house, both young and old. That's how pervasive this was. All people from every quarter, and they called a lot and said to him, Where are those men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may have relations with them. It's a Hebrew euphemism for sexual relations. But Lot went out to the doorway and shut the door behind him and said, please, my brothers. Now look at Lot's assessment. Do not act how? Wickedly. This is before the law is even written. Do not act wickedly. It was natural for Lot to understand this sin in the way that he assessed it. Now behold, I have two daughters who have not yet had relations with a man, please let me bring them out to you that, that you may do whatever you like with them. Only do not do these things, do, the, do to these men inasmuch as they have come under the shelter of my roof. A lot of debate was a lot being wise. No, don't do this with your daughter. He's just a desperate man. But they said, stand aside. Furthermore, they said, let, uh, this one came in as an alien who already, and already he's acting like a judge. That's speaking of Lot. Now we will treat you worse than them. So they pressed hard against Lot and came near to break the door. How desperately were these men pursuing this experience? 
But the men reached out their hands, these angels, and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. They struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they wearied themselves trying to find the doorway. The rest of this chapter is a a debate on trying to protect these men, but the point is simply this. Sodomy, homosexuality, desire of men for men, Lot clearly says, is acting wickedly. It's specifically forbidden, by the way, in Leviticus 18.22, called an abomination worthy of death in the death penalty in Leviticus 20, verse 13. Leviticus 20.13 says, people who do this sin are worthy of the death penalty. It was the sin at the center of the horrific scene in Gibeah in Judges 19 that ended in the abuse and dismemberment of a concubine. Remember the end of that? It's almost unspeakable. This woman is chopped into 12 pieces and sent all over Israel. At the beginning of that story, at the center of that tragic event, is the exact same scene playing out here in Genesis 19. Men trying to be with men. When you come to the New Testament, it even gets more sobering. Turn over to 2 Peter chapter 2. Peter's second epistle. Speaking of the Judgment and the rise of false prophets, Peter says, verse 6, he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to, to, to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. And if he rescued righteous Lot, who oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, by what he saw and heard that righteous man while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. That tells you what Lot was, what kind of culture he was living in. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the righteous, unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Jude 7, we find out that these people suffer eternal destruction. But the most important verse for our consideration to understand Romans 1 is in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. This to me is a passage that has, it's full of some of the most threatening fear in the whole Bible and at the same time the greatest hope in the whole Bible. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul outlines the roll call of hell. He calls out the names and the actions and the attitudes of those who will inhabit an eternal hell forever. He says this, do you not know, verse 9, do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Stop right there. He's saying unrighteous people don't go to heaven. Now you say, well, I'm unrighteous, and I'm, uh, but, but if Christ's righteousness stands in your place and you're saved, you go because of his righteousness, not your own. And you're not condemned for your unrighteousness because it was taken care of on the cross. That's the gospel. Don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Don't be lied to. Don't believe the lie. Neither will. And then he gives the list of people who will end up in hell. Fornicators, 
those who are pursuing sexual experience outside of marriage, even before marriage. Idolaters, we just saw that in Romans 1. Adulterers, nor the effeminate. Now, that doesn't mean those who may act like a woman. This is those who have pursued trying to act soft so they can attract men. Nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers. They will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's serious. But don't you love verse 11? Look at the tense of this verse. And such, what's the, what's the tense? Were, used to be, no longer. Such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God, you were saved out of those sins. Yes, those are enough to get you into hell. But God's grace, we sung it earlier, is greater still, is it not? Now, lest anyone think this is theory, this is ethereal, this is out there. We're Mission Road Bible Church. We don't deal with those issues in here. In September, September 9th, 2012, Kansas City Star, book review entitled Gay and Faithful. Now, I bring this up. It's a review of uh, a book that was written by Kelly Barth called My Almost Certainly Real Imaginary Jesus. That's the title of the book. You say, why are you bringing this up? I'm going to read you the first part of the article, and you'll know exactly why I'm bringing it up. Back in September, this gal is reviewing the book that this lesbian woman had written, and she says this. Let me just write it, read it. The title, Gay and Faithful. With eight states poised to vote on marriage equality this year and President Obama's support for the issue, 2012 is a crucial year for gay rights. It's also the year of the lesbian coming-of-age memoir that Jeanette Witherstone's Why Be Happy When You Can Be Normal and Allison Bechtel's Are You My Mother have made bestseller lists is a sign of the times. Close to home... Lawrence resident Kelly Barth's My Almost Certainly Real Imaginary Jesus is a religious memoir and a lesbian coming-of-age story in which the balance of the parts leans more heavily on religion. Barth's book opens with her childhood friend, Imaginary Jesus. More than a figment of Barth's childhood imagination, Imaginary Jesus is word-made object. I imagined I'd find him shining up from the dirt like a lost dime, cloaked and sandaled, tiny as a foil-covered Easter egg forgotten in a lampshade ruffle, she says. Barth, the youngest of four girls, grew up a Presbyterian in a middle-class ray town with her parents who, quote, were bracing for me the child I know they had to reassure themselves wasn't gay, end quote. Barth first notices her affections for girls in her Sunday school class and falls in love with the pastor's daughter after confessing to the ceramic cherubims in her bathroom about her feelings. She writes, A prayer grew in my head that my old friend Jesus would come to me and help me stop being a lesbian. End quote. Thus, the teenage Barth ventures into Christian fundamentalism. 
That's a bad choice. That, 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 that's a bad choice goes without saying. But fundamentalism's appeal harkened back to that imaginary friend who had long comforted Barn. She chooses to join the literally minded youth for Christ and the members because their members talked a lot about Jesus as if he were real. Bart's forays into fundamentalism and efforts to cure her condition are the most intriguing sections of her book, My Almost Certainly Real Imaginary Jesus. One can't help but want the self-loathing and, and socially awkward Bart to succeed in finding spiritual acceptance and yet cringe at this thought. Bart's new creed and reinforces her self-hatred and she reveals how fundamentalism appeals to and yet further traumatizes the closeted. Now, I read all that to get to this paragraph. Bart's attempt, attempts to change continue in the flow of the book throughout adulthood. She gets engaged to a Pentecostal man and wisely and abruptly calls it off. She then joins a conservative church called Southwest Bible Church, which changed its name to Mission Road Bible Church in 1998. The rest of the article just reviews the book and talks about that. You say, what, what's, wh why bring that up? This story raises the question of what is the church's response to be the homosexual? And can I say, as your pastor who loves this church, that we in large part make very low grades in how we deal with homosexuality in general and homosexuals in particular as contemporary evangelicals. Let me first say this. I've been charged specifically and pointedly by a couple of homosexuals that I'm homophobic. I, I'm afraid of a lot of things. I'm not afraid of homosexuals, but I'm afraid for their souls. I'm terrified that 1 Corinthians 6 becomes a reality in their life and they never get into the category of such worse, some of you. Homosexuals and homosexuality, friends, they are not the enemy. They're the mission field. And I think so much Christian energy is expended to make sure that homosexuals can't marry. Look, I don't want homosexuals married any more than the next guy does. But to have them married or not doesn't keep them out of hell. The gospel does. Our agenda is not political. Our agenda is spiritual. They give me a chance to vote for morality, I'm going to vote for it every time. But in the end, are we spending more effort trying to change a culture that we understand First, 2 Timothy 3, evil men will proceed from bad to worse. Is that going to get better? Are we going to vote morality in America and God's going to come back, Jesus riding on a white horse with an American flag and saying, thank you, guys? No. The great American experiment is just that. It's an experiment. And it is a blip on God's sovereign providence. I'm glad I'm here. I'll vote when they give me a chance. I'll vote for the people that I think have the best chance of protecting our culture from moral perversity. But all you have to do is look at the agenda that's being pushed right now. That's not the trajectory of where our country is going. Should that bother you? Sure, it bothers me. What do you do? Tell people the gospel. That's what you do. 
Deal with eternity. Don't deal with the present. Homosexuals are not the enemy. They need you. They need the gospel. I was in L.A. a few years ago. And this was a decade and a half ago. And Disneyland decided to, to have a day, of a gay and lesbian day. I don't know if you remember that. And when they did, the Southern Baptists, all sorts of people came out firing, just saying, we will boycott Disneyland. Can I say there's no worse strategy in the world? Can you imagine? God says, I'm going to collect a group of sinners who need to know the gospel in Disneyland for a day. That's the day I'd like to go to Disneyland. I want to stand in line for three hours, and hopefully for not, it's a small world, for another ride. (laughs) And let me tell you about Christ. Please don't make them the enemy. They're the mission field. Our weapon against these agendas isn't physical. It's not political. It's spiritual. How do you know that? Would you look back over, back to Romans for a second? Look back over at Romans chapter 1, verse 16. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why? It's the power of God. Where is the power of God exerted and flexed in this world? The political agenda is now in the gospel. Let me say again, lest you misunderstand, I'm going to vote for the best possible candidate and the best possible propositions and the best possible policy I can. I'll vote that way every time. But the bigger issue is not keeping gays out of marriage, it's keeping gays out of hell. Keep them from being married and not keep them from hell is the wrong strategy. I don't think they should have marriage. I don't think, it's not a legitimate marriage. It's ridiculous. Don't misunderstand me. My point is simple. They need what you have. They need Christ. You know what's a Christian response to homosexuality? Not to make fun of them. Not to try to talk in a way that they would talk. Not to mock them. It's not to make fun of them. It's to befriend them and tell them that there's hope in Christ. That sin is just one in a list of a whole lot of other sins. Look down, by the way, at um, where we're going to go in the next few weeks. Verse 28. There's another God gave them over. Depraved mind to do things which are not fitting. This is, God puts homosexuality in a category with things like this. Before we're too critical of, of homosexuality, remember that there's another list. Wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. That's in the same list, yes. Without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, and though they knew the ordinance of God and those who practice such things are worthy of death, yet they not only do the same, but they give hearty approval to those who practice them. How do you give hearty approval to those who practice such things? Well, you're entertained by them. You don't confront them. You laugh at them. You don't let your children and your associates know that that's not natural before God. Let's think clearly about these issues. Lastly, Don't ever assume that you know that God has given someone over until they draw their last breath. Give them the hope 
that Christ died for their sin and gives them his righteousness to be accepted by God, come to heaven, spend time with him there forever. We'll have more to say about this in the coming weeks. We're going to continue working our way through this. I just, I'm so convicted at my own life growing up and how easy it is to mock certain sins and to make fun of certain people without the compassion of Christ to think rightly about these issues. Let me ask you to bow your heads, if you would, close in prayer as we do. Prayer room to my right will be open in a minute. If you want to talk to someone about anything we've talked about today, anything in your life, your heart, any questions you have, please come to the prayer room. We'd love to pray with you and talk with you and help you and serve you in any way we can. If you're concerned about your soul, this is a good day to come and a good place to be to talk with someone about the realities of Christ in your life. Don't, no lunch is so important to run away from this decision. Just please stay and come and talk to us. Father, give us Give us your wisdom and your perspective. Give us your worldview and your thinking. We are not the creator. We are not the judge. Give us a burden and a passion to call those pursuing their sin to which you could finally give them over to, to repent, to turn away, to run to the gospel, and to know that there's hope We know that tomorrow there's an inauguration in which a man was excluded for believing the things that we've just looked at this morning. I pray for the future of Mission Road Bible Church now, this week, next month, next decade, 50 years from now, that we would never turn away from the truth that is so clear in your word. pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. dot com.